15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thank you for joining us. This is the Space Nuts podcast, all about astronomy and space science, what's happening in the wider universe or in your backyard, perhaps. My name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I am very well, sir. How are you? Yeah, I'm equally well, probably. Uh, That's good. That's good. Slightly older, but equally well. <laughs> Only slightly. <laughs> Yeah. In, in universal terms, it's very slight. It is, that's right, yeah. Super slight. Uh, now, before we get on to today's topics, I've got something to show you, which won't help people listening via the podcast or the radio network, but if you're a YouTuber, you'll see it. I am in uniform. Look. Check it out. Oh, wow. Oh, fantastic. The yeah. Space Nuts shirt. Yes, I've Polish. got a Space Nuts shirt Polish with an embroidered shirt? logo. And uh, apparently you're getting you're getting one soon too. Fred. I believe I am. Yes, yeah. I believe there might be one coming for me. It's too. only taken us five years to make you know, make enough money to pay for a logo, yeah. <laughs> and to pay for one each for for us. one each as well. Yes, exactly right. Now coming up on this particular edition of Space Nuts, uh, we're going to look at a, an incident involving the International Space Station. Uh, they've had a little bingle, they a little have. bingle. Uh, plus, uh, the search for the origin of the asteroid that polished off the dinosaurs and not in a good way. No polish involved, in fact. Uh, it was uh, <laughs> a huge mess. Uh, and we're going to answer some audience questions. Uh, one about, uh, well, it's, a, it's sort of a multi-pronged uh, question about pulsars and quasars. What's the difference between them? How does matter escape a black hole? And, um, yeah. Uh, a few other things involving uh, black holes, pulsars and quasars, and uh, we'll, we'll get on to that. And we've got a, a question from the United States uh, about uh, explaining the heliopause and the journeys of uh, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. And it's a great question because uh, I don't think we've ever been directly asked to explain the heliopause before. I won't be doing that, but Fred, Fred will be. Uh, so we're going to cover all of that today on the Space Nuts podcast. Uh, but first, Fred, let's uh, head out to the International Space Station, and there's been a little bit of a hiccup. Yeah, there has, um, which has sort of set back a, a program that's of great interest to all of us, which is getting the, um, the, the Starliner up there to, to do a test flight, uh, which is Boeing's... Um, you know, Boeing's answer to to the Crew Dragon um, module that SpaceX runs up and down these days to the mm. uh, to the International Space Station. So what happened was a, a new module for the space station, and it's a Russian one, so it goes on the Russian half of the space station, uh, whose name is, a, uh, I think I'm right in saying it's Nauka, it is, uh, I'm not sure whether I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it looks like Nauka to me. And uh, what happened was that um, module, uh, essentially it's, you know, it's a big piece of kit. This thing's um, 13 metres long and weighs 20 tonnes. So it's not just a, a, a tin can that's being attached to it. It's a, a tin can, but a very big one. <clears throat> and what it will do is give um, the Russian segment of the space 
station much more space. It'll um, open it up. And um, most importantly of all, Andrew, it carries an extra toilet as well. So, you know, that's a <laughs> really, well, you can't have too many of those things. You cannot have too many bathrooms <laughs> on a space station, I'm sure. Yes, exactly. So um, what happened was the Nauka module uh, headed up there on, um, I'm not sure what the launch vehicle was, but uh, it uh, made rendezvous with the space station, uh, did all its stuff. This is uh, a few days ago now. Um, but once it had docked with the International Space Station, um, this was about three hours after everything had gone. The flight itself took eight days to get from the surface of the Earth. Now docked with the space station. Everybody had a cup of tea or whatever you do when something like that is uh, just finished. But then it started um, firing its rockets uh, without a command to say, fire your rockets. Oh. Uh, these are thrusters that are on that Nauka, and they began firing uh, at, uh, you know, a, 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 I don't know whether it was full power or because I don't even know whether these are throttleable. They, they might be on or off. Anyway, it fired for a matter of minutes um, before uh, a, a, a command was given to kill everything uh, and cut the the motors um and that uh, then resulted in a of course um a recovery operation which happened very quickly mm. uh, what it did uh, andrew was not to shove the the space station off its orbit um that would probably have required a bit more oomph to do that yep. but what it did do was change the attitude of the space station in other words it, it tilted it over oh. uh, with an error it, it moved it by 45 degrees um, and you can easily imagine that because this this uh, module its thrusters when they fired would not fire in the line of the center of mass of the space station uh, which is what you'd need if it wasn't going to change the attitude mm. uh, any, any other thrust is going to tilt it one way or another um, so yeah, forty-five degrees, which is quite significant. Now, of course, in space, you, it doesn't matter which way is up because you, you're 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 weightless. Uh, yeah. However, um, the the space station has to be kept at the right orientation. It's all about the solar panels and the orientation with respect to Earth and things of that sort. So there was um, an, another operation with uh, thrusters on board another Russian segment, which is uh, Zvezda, uh, and a Progress freighter that's also docked. Uh, they basically, they, the, the, the rocket motors on those um, segments were used to bring the space station back uh, to its proper orientation. And the, th the whole thing was over in less than an hour, in fact. Mm. It was really um, quite uh, very, very neatly done. Uh, NASA's tweet about it was uh, space station crew members are safe and will scrub their schedules for today in order to focus on recovery efforts following the unexpected loss of attitude caused by the Russian Nauka modules thrusters firing. Station is back in attitude control and is in good shape. Um, so uh, all is all is well, uh, but it, it, it apparently, um, in a later report I read, it, it seems to have traced the... Um, uh, the, the 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 you know the erroneous firing or the errant firing of these thrusters to a software issue, uh, which is exactly the kind of thing that you might uh, expect. This, I, this... I, I was betting on somebody flicking a cigarette out the window. And, you know. <laughs> 
Well, you never know. <clears throat> yes. Uh, meanwhile, back in the real world, um, <laughs> uh, there's a, quite a long story uh, with Nauka because it should have launched uh, 14 years ago. Uh, wow. But, but there were all kinds of slips in schedule, budget difficulties, uh, technical problems, the whole, you know, the whole thing. Uh, and apparently even after... It's launch. I remember I said it took eight days to get up to the space station. Actually, it doesn't take that long to get up there, but then you've got to do all the catching up with the space station and orientation and everything. Yeah. Apparently, on its way up, it had propulsion issues, um, which, uh, as the BBC said, required work arounds from controllers in Moscow. Um, but it did arrive at, on the on the planned schedule. Sounds um, like sounds like it was built by a Russian car company. Well, I won't comment on that, but you could be right. <laughs> what it does do, it uh, it raises uh, the, uh, the 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 volume of um, habitability on the space station by seventy cubic meters. So this is quite a significant uh, addition. And as I mentioned, there's an, an additional um, restroom there uh, mm-hmm. for crew use. Um, what else was on board was uh, an eleven meter long uh, robotic arm. Uh, which is called ERA, which I suspect is the European robotic arm, because uh, it comes from the European Space Agency. Uh, and that's something that uh, is a device that's built uh, for external operation around the Russian segment of the space station, which obviously got fittings on the outside that this thing will link onto. It's got, um, it, it's interesting, the structure of it. It just looks like, a large pair of compasses, if you remember what. Oh they yes, like. I remember those um, things. Yeah, and and uh, apparently, um, you know, it, the ends of the two arms grab onto onto fixtures on the uh, on the external part of the Russian modules, mm. and it and it basically grabs one, pulls itself along, grabs the other, pulls itself along, uh, so it walks along the outside of the um, of the of the module, moving hand over hand, as the BBC report put it. Quite a nice way of putting it. Oh, impressive. Yeah, it's great. The one thing that has happened is, as I mentioned, um, it's pushed back an uncrewed test flight that was scheduled for last Friday Hmm. of Boeing, the Boeing Starliner uh, capsule, which is, you know, an equivalent of the, uh, uh, of the um, uh, SpaceX Crew Dragon. Uh, But, um, and that was, the, the earliest date that they could do it, I think, was probably today or maybe yesterday, and I haven't heard whether that launch has taken place. So I suspect it's still on hold. So um, the the I wanted to ask you about the Starliner. This this is essentially going to be a, a transport vehicle. Yes, it, it's it's able to carry crew. So in in the same way that uh, the Dragon capsule can can carry cargo or, or crew. There are mm. different versions. This will be the same. Um, I have to say I don't know that much about it. I think um, Starliner is specifically you, – you, when. So, so just going back, sorry, backtracking there to 2011 when the, the new version of NASA was wheeled out where the uh, commercial sector was going to be uh, essentially um, – um, Co-opted to to to, to carry out 
transport of, of astronauts up and down to the to the space station using commercial vehicles rather than NASA sponsored ones, even though NASA's funded it. Um, the two companies that sort of won out actually there were three because uh, what was then Orbital Dynamics also had a module um, that's changed hands now. I think it's part of Northrop Grumman. I might be wrong there. There's, uh, these things need a bit of uh, attention to keep up with them. But um, but the two ones that were in the lead, I mean. Uh, SpaceX kind of won the race, as it were, with their Crew Dragon, which has now made at least two crewed flights to the space station, maybe more. Uh, Boeing was the other winner in the uh, in the the, the contract race, uh, but also is about to test out their their um, Starliner. It's a mm. nice name, isn't it, for a, it is. for a spacecraft? Yeah, yeah, I like it. Yeah, just uh, by the by, my son, not long after he moved to Sydney, worked for a company that had a contract with uh, Boeing Aerospace. So he oh. um, he, de- he did actually work for uh, Boeing on some of their aerospace contracts uh, some some years ago. Yeah, I don't think it was you know I think it was mainly ordering parts and bits and pieces and things like that. But uh, yeah, he he, uh, he might have had something to do with the Starliner and not Who even knows? know it. Who knows? Um, yes, you might not. Yeah, know. That's but, right. um, yeah, fascinating work, and uh, and I, I think when when it, uh, you were trying to think of a, a way to describe uh, the you know the regearing of NASA so that all the transport sort of went to the private sector, yeah, they call that outsourcing. Ah, uh, yes, I've heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> outsourcing. Yeah. yeah. So everything yeah. is well. That's good news with the yeah. ISS. Uh, of course, the journalist in me has just come up with a list of what if questions. What if they mm. couldn't shut it down? What would have yeah. happened then? Well, it would have eventually run out of fuel, and it, it, you know, it may even have it, it could even have sent the space station into a spin. Mm. Um, and doing that would have meant some very quick uh, thinking on behalf of the controllers who sit um, watching these things at all times, both in in Moscow and uh, down in Houston. Uh, the the um, the thing they'd have had to do was work out which thrusters elsewhere on the space station you need to fire to oppose the the torque, the, the rotation that's being provided by the errant one. It's uh, it, it's pretty scary, and I imagine yeah. uh, initially they would have been absolutely stunned by what was happening. Uh, but from what I've read, the, the the way they reacted and dealt with it was extremely brilliant and, and clever yeah, and they would have all sorts of safety protocols and they would do all sorts of drills regularly to to cover yeah. all possible <clears throat> contingencies and obviously they'll do an investigation they'll learn from this and they'll be uh, you know more ready next time if there is a next time and you hope not but uh it, yeah I, I would imagine the training that they go through and and, and the protocols that they would have and and you know if all else fails their escape plans would be yeah. uh, something that would be very well drilled into the astronauts and cosmonauts. So um, it's, yeah, yeah, all credit to them. They, they solved this problem brilliantly from what I've read. Fantastic job. It looks job. like it, yeah. I mean, mm. um, it's sort of akin, you know, the way pilots are trained. The first thing you learn is how do you get out of a spin or how do you connect yeah. a, a, a roll Stall. or something like that. Stall, yeah. yeah. So, and, and that's drilled into them from the word go. And I guess the same kind of thing probably happens on the space station. Next time I'm talking to an astronaut, I'll ask him. Or yes, sorry, indeed. Pardon. In fact, I was talking to one last week, but he didn't. He didn't listen to what I said. 
because <laughs> he was on he was on a webinar. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Anyway, it's all good news for the ISS. A little a little bit of a dust up, but uh, you know, back to normal now. Yep. Yep. This is the Space Nuts podcast. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Yes, thanks for listening. And Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson, of course. And a big hello to all our social media followers. If you um, haven't started following us on social media yet, I suggest you do. If you've got a Facebook account, you can join the Space Nuts Facebook page. But there's also a Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook, which is uh, it's it's geared to basically give you a, an interface between uh, fellow listeners. So you can all get together and chat and swap ideas and, and ask questions of each other. Uh, it can be anything from, you know, showing off your telescope right through to uh, talking about something extraordinary that's been discovered in the universe and putting theories and, and uh, discussions behind it. So it's a, it's a great little group and uh, a lot of fun. So look for it on Facebook. Uh, just do a search for Space Nuts or Space Nuts Podcast Group. Join both. Why the heck not? I mean, cost you nothing. Cost you nothing. Okay, Fred, let's move on. And we've talked about the uh, asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs, uh, which plummeted into what is now the Gulf of Mexico or part thereof uh, around 66 uh, billion, million years ago, 66 million years ago. Uh one of the great mysteries of this is we don't really know where it came from and they've been trying to figure that one out. Have they come up with a theory they or have. indeed an answer? It could be an answer. That's right. It's um, This is really interesting work uh, in terms of um, our understanding of uh, the asteroid belt in particular, uh, but the, you know, the, the frequency with which the Earth might be zapped by impactors. Uh, so, uh, what's happened is that do you do you remember Myrtle, Andrew? Yes. Myrtle was yes. the uh, the drilling rig uh, in the Gulf of Mexico that um, drilled down to get samples of the uh, of the of the the material that this asteroid was made of. Mm. Um, and I assume from what I've read about this work that we're reporting today uh, that that is one of the sources where these rock samples. Have come from the, uh, the the Myrtle drill drill cores, because what uh, what turns out to be the case is that the, the the drill the drill core samples and other rock samples as well, which are from the the area, <coughs> excuse me, indicate that the asteroid that that wiped out the dinosaurs the um, Cretaceous tertiary impact, as it used to be called, it's called something else now, uh, 66 million years ago. That asteroid was actually um, a, a particularly, uh, a fairly rare type of, uh, of asteroid, which is called a carbonaceous chondrite. And, and as the name implies, these are stony asteroids, but they're rich in carbon. They're quite dark in colour. Mm. Uh, and what, what, uh, what the scientists have done, I can't remember whether I mentioned it already, but it's come from SWERI, the, the Southwest Research Institute, um, which is, um, uh, I think it's uh, Colorado, if I remember rightly. Uh, that is, uh, that's where the team of scientists that have done this work uh, are based. Uh, they do marvellous things at SWERI, the, the um, 
the, the whole of the outer solar system is their regime in terms of understanding what's going on. But but this work, um, it, it's it's looked at uh, whereabouts these things come from in the asteroid belt. And it turns out that when you examine, and I'm talking now about the main asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, not the, the trans-Neptunian objects uh, or the, the Jovian Trojans or anything like that. This is yep. the main asteroid belt. Uh, the, the carbonaceous chondrites tend to inhabit the outer region of that asteroid belt, so they're nearer to Jupiter. And uh, it was always thought, or it has been thought, that those objects wouldn't find it easy to, to whiz in towards the inner solar system. I mean, the, the asteroid belt is pretty stable, which is why it's there. Uh, yeah. It's all this, this collection of debris that maybe would have formed a planet had Jupiter not been so near. It's thought Jupiter might have you know, disturbed the formation of a planet between Mars and Jupiter. Uh, and what we're left with is the debris, the, the, the mm. planet that never was, the asteroid belt. But the, the, but the asteroid belt itself is divisible into many different sectors. And the outer region is where these carbonaceous chondrites tend to hang out. Uh, and so what scientists have wondered about is, is there a mechanism that gets them into the inner solar system where they might collide with Earth? And uh, what they've done is they've run many um, simulations of the way the gravitational field of the of Jupiter and Saturn and other planets uh, kind of tickles these uh, you know these asteroids at the at the far boundary of the asteroid belt and pushes them into orbits that will bring them towards the inner solar system and sure enough that that works they can produce um, a scenario where this happens and that's allowed these scientists to do uh, statistical analysis on that kind of uh, that kind of phenomenon that, that these asteroids are, are tipped out of their stable orbits on the edge of the asteroid belt and pushed into orbits that will intersect with the Earth's orbit. Uh, okay. So they, um, in fact, their statistics suggest that um, a ten-kilometer asteroid of the kind that wiped out the dinosaurs would hit the Earth on average once every. 250 million years um and that's sort of ties in with you know the uh, the chicxulub event the crater that uh, is the result of that uh, dinosaur wiping out impact uh, 66 million years ago and more than that they they found that um when they analyzed these asteroids more than half of them would have been carbonaceous uh, chondrites uh, exactly what we find with the chicxulub impactor so mm -hmm. Really, uh, what 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 it does um, is uh, it, it sort of lets you look as well. I mean, let scientists look at the other big impacts that have affected the Earth's history. Uh, the, the the dinosaur killer is the one we all talk about because it yeah. probably opened the way for the evolution of mammals, uh, eventually ourselves. Um, had it not happened, the dinosaurs might have hung around a lot longer. Uh, so, but but there were other impacts as well in the Earth's history, and so they're they're looking at these too to see, you know, how many match, um, how many of those were carbonaceous chondrites, and whether it matches the statistics that they're forecasting. Yeah, it, it, it does appear that these impacts by uh, carbonaceous chondrites are more common than they originally thought. Is that yes. a fair yeah. statement? I think that's right. Yes, mm. uh, and and it's. 
It, it's actually interesting because it, it ties in with some other research that was released uh, this week, um, which I haven't got in front of me. But that's about the way uh, planets have changed the the orbits of of asteroids. And um, it's a surprise, actually, because uh, there are some even more carbon-containing uh, asteroids which are ext- extremely red in colour, and most of them are the trans-Neptunian objects, so the, you know, the Kuiper Belt objects beyond the orbit of Neptune. But yeah. it turns out that there are a few of those um, in the main asteroid belt, and that's suggesting that gravitational processes have allowed these very, very red objects, really primitive objects, uh, which are basically leftovers from the formation of the solar system. It's allowed those to come out from the, the depths of space, uh, which is where they would would have been formed, <clears throat> and inhabit the, the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. It's, uh, so that, that they can see mechanisms, gravitational mechanisms by which that might happen, which kind mm. of ties in with what we've been talking about. That's yes, completely indeed. independent research. And it's not surprising that they used computer modelling to figure all this out because how else can you do it? But they yeah, used yeah. Uh, NASA's supercomputer Pleiades, yes. which uh, I think was portrayed in the in the movie The Martian to solve a uh, uh, yeah. an orbit and retrieval right. system to to rescue the uh, the stricken astronaut. But um, they they looked at like one hundred and thirty thousand model asteroids to to work out how these things get shifted out of their position and i think the answer was uh, some sort of thermal effect i think was yes that's thermal, right thermal forces hmm. yeah, exactly so it's the way they're heated and you know perhaps um uh heating on one side rather than the other preferentially changes the orbit yeah, yeah fascinating <clears throat> all right so now we know where it came from and we hope there are no more but <laughs> it stands yeah. to reason that these things uh, continue to happen. We just, uh, okay, so every 250 million years, six, we've still got around 180 got million yeah. years to wait. We should be, we should be fine. But remember, it's statistics, though, and it could happen tomorrow. Except the good, the good thing is that um, we've got something the dinosaurs didn't have, which is telescopes all over the world, which are looking for these things. So. And, and, nu- and nuclear bombs and Bruce Willis. And Bruce Willis, of course, yes. Yes. All of That's the above. Going to save us all. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, good though that they've been able to track it down. Yeah. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Don't forget to visit our website if you want to have a look around. You can check out the Space Nuts shop. You can uh, look at the latest news from around the astronomical world. It's all available at spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io we've uh, managed to secure that url which is a little bit easier to remember spacenuts.io is the new url for space nuts uh, all sorts of things to see and do there of course um, yeah, if you browse through the space nuts shop you'll find uh, all sorts of fascinating things from flip-flops to books to um, hoodies so when you go robbing a few banks they won't know where you're from or who you who you are <laughs> Of course, it will, have, it will have this on it. Look, Yay. it will have the Space Nuts logo on it, so that might sort of be a, a dead giveaway, but uh, worth looking at. And uh, if you've got someone that you need to buy a gift for and you just think, oh, my uncle's a super geek and I really don't know where to get him, Space Nuts shop. There you go. Uh, now, Fred, we've got some questions, and our first one comes from the Netherlands. Hey, guys. 
this is um hi andrew hi fred uh this is remy trotje i'm from uh, the netherlands from leiden i used to live next to the observatory that i think fred mentioned um before um i have a question about quasars and pulsars um first off maybe you could t tell me the difference again because that's mind-boggling to start with also um uh, my burning question is how does matter or radiation or whatever squirt out of the gravitational pool of the black hole how is it possible that such gravitational pool uh, that it still can go out of it and also i think fred mentioned before that they are extinct can you maybe explain that to me again i would love to hear it from you guys um, I love this show and, uh, yeah, I can't wait for the bumper sticker. Thanks guys. Uh, keep up the good work. I love you guys. Bye-bye. Uh, lovely to hear from you too. Thank you. Uh, and yeah, I think they're extinct because of a, um, a an asteroid. Right. <laughs> Maybe not, but, uh, let's start from the top of the list because I heard paper rustling there. So I'm thinking there was quite a <laughs> yeah, list of not. questions going on. Uh, pulsars, quasars, what's the difference? A lot, really. They, you know, like uh, many things in astronomy, they've got similar names, but uh, quite different objects or quite different things. It's a bit like dark matter and dark energy. Mm. We really should think carefully about how we name things. And um, I, I remember, Andrew, when I was just a youngster, I don't know, in my early teens probably, reading a lot of astronomy books, half of which I didn't understand. And I always got um, uh, elliptic and ecliptic mixed up, which are two quite different things as well. Ecliptic's the plane of the Earth's orbit, and elliptic is the shape of a of an orbit, an oval. Mm. And uh, yeah, I couldn't understand what these. I thought they were all the same things. Anyway, never mind that. Uh, so the the two terms actually, pulsar and quasars, both date from the nineteen sixties. It's a very sixties thing, uh, and a, a quasar. The name comes from. It's kind of an abbreviation of quasi-stellar radio source. And there are two halves to that. Quasi-stellar means it looks like a star, so it's, it's, a, it's a point source, uh, and uh, the uh, radio source means it emits radio waves. Uh, in fact, we now know that uh, quasars don't necessarily emit radio waves. They're radio quiet ones, but that's kind of how the, the term originated. And it's a good term, quasi-stellar quasi radio sources, <clears throat> collapsed into quasars. Nowadays, mm. they've got two slightly different meanings, but that's all right. We don't need to worry about that. Um, so they are things that look like stars, and they shine brightly, uh, but they uh, they emit radio radio waves, Many of them do. And the thing about stars is they don't emit radio waves. So for a, for a while, people were puzzled about what they are. And then some work uh, done by a, a group of uh, American and British astronomers, the, the um, British version, the British side of this, and Australians, I should add, uh, all thrown into the mix. Cyril Hazard was uh, a well-known British astronomer at that time. I've met him several times, a really interesting guy uh, <clears throat> with an accent not very different from mine, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, he was one of the people who worked out, um, first of all, that these things were extremely small. In other words, the, the, the source of light was, was tiny. It wasn't a big galaxy or anything, but also that they were a long way away. 
um, and that that they're at what we call extragalactic distances. In fact, very remote indeed. Their distances are <clears throat> almost all, excuse me, measured in billions of light years. So that's quasars. Pulsars, uh, famously discovered by Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who I'm delighted to say I also know. Uh, she wrote a lovely uh, endorsement for um, exploding stars and invisible planets, which I was thrilled with. I used to work alongside her in Edinburgh. Um, so Jocelyn found these uh, spikes of radio, radio radiation, uh, and well, it's well known the story. She wrote LGM next to it on the on the the output trace because this stuff came out on on paper traces. Uh, <clears throat> LGM meant little green men with a question mark after it because um, it was you know a kind of wow signal. But but mm. very quickly it was realised that these weren't. Uh, her PhD supervisor got a Nobel Prize for that work. Um, Jocelyn has always been extremely gracious about that and said it and says it would have been inappropriate for her to be on the Nobel list, um, even though a lot of people say, yeah, it's typical. The, the you know, the, the young woman student does all the work and the supervisor guy, middle aged white guy goes off and takes the Nobel Prize. And you, that's certainly a valid point. But uh, as I said, yeah. Jocelyn herself has always been gracious. So what are they? Um, they're neutron stars. So these are tiny objects. They're 10 kilometers across, which are beaming radiation from their magnetic poles. And if they're on their side, uh, which they often are, they flash this stuff through the universe like a lighthouse beam. And we see them as pulses of radiation. So that's the difference. Um, quasars are at very great distances. Pulsars tend to be in our own galaxy, uh, mm. although there are in, uh, extragalactic ones as well. Uh, one's a defunct star. Um, that, that's the, the, the pulsar. It's a neutron star, a star that's collapsed at the end of its life. Whereas a quasar comes from a supermassive black hole. As we now know, they didn't know that in the 60s, but it's a galaxy with a supermassive black hole at its centre, which is absolutely voraciously consuming the stuff around it. So it's it's in a an, an environment that is rich in gas and dust. It's chewing all that stuff up and basically beaming out the radiation. Uh, now, that is one reason why they're extinct today, just to cut to the end of uh, of the question because um we don't see in in today's universe and by that i mean we're looking back only a billion years or so um so looking out into space to a billion light years means you're looking back a billion years in time we yeah. we don't see i think there's one actually one candidate which might be nearer than a billion years but all the rest are more than in fact i think the next nearest one is two and a half billion years light years away, so two and a half billion years ago as we see it. And so um, the, the thinking is that we don't see these in today's universe because there isn't the raw material around them for the, for the black holes to chew up and spit out. So um, uh, now the, the middle bit of the question is the, is the bit that I always find it hard to get my head around as well, and that mm. is how do uh, supermassive black holes like the ones in quasars how do they make material um, avoid being sucked into the black hole and squirted out in the north and south pole of the black hole at relativistic velocities, nearly the speed Which of Which we actually talked about last week. But, yeah, it's a, it's a 
It's a good we, question. We do yeah. talk about it quite a bit, yeah. And it's yeah. all about magnetic fields. Um, for, first of all, the thing to remember is that this stuff does not get within the, uh, the event horizon. Mm-hmm. Once material gets inside the event horizon, it's gone. There's nothing will save it. But th- this is stuff that's um, whirling around the black hole event horizon at very high speed, and it encounters these incredibly strong magnetic fields and the tendency there is for them to be for, for the material to be focused along or collimated is the technical term in parallel beams uh, along the, the poles of the of the black hole the rotation poles. So um, really quite remarkable physics there. Uh, I confess I've never looked at the equations; they'd probably scare me to death. Um, <laughs> so I um, I've kept away from that. But uh, it does work, and the theorists are very very confident that this is what happens. Um, it's stuff that nearly gets sucked into the black hole, but not quite. Uh, we know that you know we know that at those distances from the black hole event horizon, even light is bent round in a circle. So it's um, yeah, remarkable stuff. Indeed. Uh, thank Indeed. you for the question. All right, great question. Yes, yes, uh, lovely to hear from you, and I hope you're well. Let's uh, move on to our next question. This uh, is a text question, and it comes from Beverly in Texas. Uh, I, I like this question because it's it's not something we've really focused on before. I've been reading about the Voyager spacecraft. I read that Voyager 1 crossed the heliopause in 2012 and Voyager 2 is still in the helio sheath. I haven't heard a lot about the heliosphere, so I'd appreciate any information you could give regarding it. Also, what might the Voyager spacecraft 1 and 2 tell us once they've passed into interstellar space? Will we continue to communicate with them? I really enjoy your podcast. Thank you, Beverly. Well, thank you, Beverly. Uh, great question. Um, where do you want to start with that, Fred? That's uh, <laughs> that's a ripper. It is. It's great. Um, and so, uh, the heliosphere is the basically it's just the region of space that is uh, the where the sun's magnetic influence prevails or predominates. So um, we've got a similar thing on Earth. We call it the magnetosphere. It's the the, the Earth's uh, magnetic field and the area in space where the Earth's magnetic field uh, dominates. Uh, Likewise, there is a a magnetopause, which is the boundary between the Earth's magnetic field and where the Sun's magnetic field predominates because that's the the Sun's magnetic field pervades the solar system. So there's the same thing. Uh, at these great distances, and we're talking now at um, you know twenty twenty uh, trillion kilometers. Uh, no, we're not. We're talking twenty billion kilometers. <laughs> twenty trillion kilometers is halfway to the nearest star, and we're not there yet. Sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. Twenty billion kilometers uh, of um, of distance from the sun to to the more or less the two Voyager spacecraft. Voyager 1 is further away. Uh, mm. it's, it's a bit further. And so um, what you've got with the sun's magnetic field, we're in the heliosphere. The heliosheath is the – I'm not clear, you know, I'm not an expert on these magnetic fields. I've got colleagues who are, but they're not here. Um, what the difference between the heliosheath and the heliopause is. But it's basically both of them represent the boundary. I think there are differences between them, between yeah. the sun's magnetic field. I, I, I guess the, the sheath is, in a sense, a, a boundary – region of magnetism where the magnetic field changes quite dramatically and the heliopause is the edge of it. Um, But when you get outside the heliopause, 
what you're feeling is the magnetic field of interstellar space. It's basically the magnetic field of the galaxy. Uh, and so that has a different magnetic signature from the helio, heliosphere, the heliosheath and the heliopause, which, whose magnetic signatures have been recorded by Voyager. Uh, and in particular, Voyager 1, exactly as Beverly says, uh, crossed this boundary some years ago. Now, Voyager 2 is going in a different direction. It's actually going in the Southern Hemisphere. In fact, you remember that only the Tidbin Villa dish can actually communicate with Voyager 2. Um, uh, so Voyager 2 is uh, in, in an area where I think the helio... It, so the heliosphere is not perfectly symmetric. It's got it's got bumps and dints in it uh, caused by the fact that it's a dynamic thing. It's all about magnetism, which changes. Mm. Uh, and I think there were reports that uh, Voyager 2 had crossed the heliopause and then that it hadn't um, because maybe the boundary changed or something of that sort. Um, but I think it still is within the sun's magnetic field of influence. Okay. Voyager 1 isn't, though, definitely out of it. And just to... Um, answer the final bit of Beverly's question, how long will we be getting readings from these spacecraft? So what's been happening? Uh, their power supply is dwindling. Uh, they've both got these RTGs, radioisotope thermoelectric generators, to provide the power, which is plutonium, uh, hot plutonium, which is very slowly cooling. Um, and what's been happening is that mission controllers, I think both of them are still in contact with Earth, pretty sure of that. Mission controllers have been steadily switching off different instruments uh, just to reduce the load on the RTG. Um, and I think, you know, the magnet magnetometers and the transmitters are among the last which will, uh, which will be turned off. But I think we might still be hearing from them until the mid 2030s, uh, mm. as I understand it, I, um, I, I do remember uh, seeing. I think it was in a documentary series about uh, when Voyager crossed that threshold. Uh, they detected that it happened due to some strange radio signal that they received from Voyager One. Uh, that, that, I, I don't know exactly how that transpired, mm. but they, um, they they picked up this 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 weirdness. Uh, yeah. in, in a signal. And, Maybe, yes, that's right, in the signal and, itself. And they put it down to this crossing the threshold from uh, yeah. into interstellar space. Uh, and I uh, suppose that's that's one of the other things that uh, Beverly wanted to know is what, what can the, the probes tell us once they're travelling in inter interstellar space? Will there be anything to learn from them? Yeah, indeed. They, uh, you know, and certainly uh, the, the, the main thing is the magnetism. Um, now, the, the solar system is... Its gravitational influence goes on a long way beyond that uh, because you and I have spoken before about the Oort cloud, the comet reservoir, yep. which is uh, somewhere in the region of 10% of the way to the nearest star, um, mm. a spherical region. Now, um, it's, it is possible that one day Voyager 1 or Voyager 2 might run into one of these things, but um, it's it's... It's so far away that that's going to be quite a number of years. I can't remember how many years yet. And I think by then they will have lost their power supply and so we won't be hearing from them anymore. But yeah. uh, in the meantime, uh, they will be able to tell us about the external magnetic field, about the magnetic field of the galaxy, how it changes, how it fluctuates, direction, things of that sort. Mm. Um, one final 
footnote to this, if I may, uh, and it's a plug for the new book, of course, uh, that my new kids' book, Space Warp, that um, you might remember it's full of cartoons that I've drawn. The last one, the very last one, is a portrait of Voyager, uh, oh. which is thinking to itself, it's getting a bit lonely out here. <laughs> yes, yes. Voyager I, one, yeah. I imagine it would because they, these are objects that have travelled farther than any other thing yeah. made and, by and the, humanity. Yes, they will do, and they probably outlast us, Andrew. They probably outlast the species, unless they hit something in the Oort cloud. So. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Fascinating stuff. And Beverly, thank you so much for your question. Lovely to hear from you, and hope all is well in Texas. And that brings us to the end of another program. Fred, lovely to talk to you. Of course, oh, mm. by the way, uh, anybody who has questions, please go to our website. Make sure you click on the AMA tab and all the information you need there on how to record a question or send us uh, an email question is there. So the AMA tab on the spacenutspodcast.com website or spacenuts.io, it'll take you to the same place. So you can ask your questions of Fred through, uh, through our website. Yes, we're uh, at the end of uh, another episode. Fred, thank you so much. Always good to talk. Always a pleasure talking to you too, Andrew, and uh, learning new things about the universe. <laughs> indeed, indeed we are. Uh, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts, and we thank him as always. Uh, he'll be back next week. Thanks to Hugh in the studio for pushing all the buttons and changing the toilet paper. And uh, from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again for uh, listening and watching, and we'll catch you on the very next episode. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.